Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be taking a look at the 20th anniversary screening of Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. We'll also be looking at No Country for Old Men, the Joel and Ethan Cohen film. I've never seen it. So, uh, fresh, fresh, hot sports opinions on the show. Hot sports opinions. Hot takes. That's the <laughs> one I was takes. looking for. Hot takes. Uh, but it'll be good. We're also going to take a look back at Crazy Rich Asians because we had somebody reach out to us uh, and, and, and point out something we'd kind of missed. And I think it's important to talk about that. And before that, uh, we want to get to the news. I guess that's the best place to start this show, like any other. In our first story, the Academy Awards are postponing the new popular Oscar category. Ah, vindication. <laughs> yes. That's right, yes. So they ended up having a huge backlash to the popular Oscar category. Um, there were assertions, you know, th- there were worries that things like Black Panther would end up winning this award and essentially cementing a separate but equal award, which has very negative connotations, um, as you can imagine. They also ran into issues of people were asking just technical questions about, okay, what what are the guidelines? What are the rules? Because they have, you know, guidelines for each award. Um, and so they didn't really have answers of how they were defining what is considered popular film and then what is not. Yeah, I think that was the biggest problem with the popular award category, right? Because everybody looked at it and said, why don't you just pick the one that makes the most money? Like, that's essentially what yeah. that seems to boil down to. And therefore, what's the point in having an award? Uh, that that that's, that doesn't add up to anything. And, and I guess they need to have defined it in a more intriguing way. Because like we said, when you, when you first told me that about it, the most popular award uh, category, I thought, okay, it'd be neat if they went for something like most innovatively popular. Like you, you, you brought something to a genre or you did something new that has since become a trend in the same way that like Hans Zimmer kind of coined the uh, big boom in every trailer since inception. Like yeah. you did something that became really cool. Obviously that's a trailer, not a film, but that's what I mean. Like what if you pioneered some kind of camera shot or you did something really neat or you had some kind of, I don't know, mechanic or character structure that like was undeniably influential that year. That would be a neat award. Right. But that's not most popular. Yeah. And you know, and that, it's, it's incredibly vague to define and, and it is again, an effort to become more mainstream, to get, appeal to more viewers, get more people to watch the stupid Oscars, mm-hmm. which I love, but I'm like the only person. Yeah, and we, I mean, we talked about it. I get it. Like the Oscars, they got to do something. They're, they're hurting. I, I, I get it. But I mean, what, what can you do, right? You can make it shorter and you can tighten things up. But at the end of the day, like if everybody's going to get their due diligence and the Oscars are going to be the Oscars, um, there's some things you got to hang on to. There's some tentpole foundations there. And one of them is not just having a category for the movie that made the most money or was the most yeah. popular. I don't know. That's what the MTV Movie Awards are for. They're, yeah. they're for the pop stuff. And those are really fun and diverse awards in their own right. Those are the Teen Choice Awards. You can do those. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Black yeah. Panther will get all those awards. It'll be great. Uh, the next story we have, and this is actually our last story, because surprisingly light Newsweek, uh, and this is one of those things that like I hate to love to hate to love to talk about. I think that's right. Predator. Uh, Fox has chastised Olivia Munn for telling co-stars about a cut scene from the Predator film. Uh, Predator. Just the Predator. Predator. Yeah, just Predator. Predator. I think so. Uh, <laughs> about a uh, a scene involving a registered sex offender. Okay, so, okay, I've, so I've, yeah, <laughs> I've been hearing about this story uh, all week and been hearing more and more details. Um, and so what happened is Olivia Munn came forward uh, when she found out that a co-star um, on the film uh, apparently was a registered sex offender. And it's someone that she did a scene with, which I didn't know about. I just heard that he was on the film. Um, and so she immediately called Fox com- and filed a complaint. And 
they, they ended up cutting the scene because the scene is with her and, and it, it's not, and it, it's just uh, like a random jogger hitting on her is, is what happens. But she, uh, she didn't know anything about his like criminal past and she felt she should have. And so she, again, she called Fox, but she also called her coworkers. Um, but the reaction to this has been very divisive or uh, somewhat divisive. Speaking of devices, the, the movie is The Predator. Probably okay. should have nailed that down before we started recording our Close movie enough. podcast. Close enough for jazz. That's right. Um, it's it's tough, man. Because we were talking about this before the show, because this is one of those things that like we should probably get our ducks in a row before we get on the air and say something that we don't mean or gets... I don't know. Um, I, I guess like Shane Black or a casting director or whoever makes these decisions in a film, probably the director at this point, they're not legally obligated to tell you that. That, like they don't have to do that. They should, like you said, it's a philosophical mm-hmm. thing that should happen, of course. But like, there's no writer in an actor's. Con- I mean, at least probably not in Olivia Munn's contract that says, "Hey, I need to know exactly this at this point." I get why she's concerned. She should be. I I get why this is a problem. I understand. But like at the same time, like from a professional standpoint, like that's not that's not a thing in the U.S. I don't think. Like it's not. Oh, you have to report that. Like, and I, no. But I don't what, know. what is uh, troubling to me is that um, Fox itself wasn't alerted. So even if I don't know about a coworker's criminal past, my employer should definitely. Right. And so, and even uh, Shane Black himself has said that he should have let everyone know that he should have let Fox know he should have let the co-stars right. he know. didn't tell the cast crew or studio according to this article it's and let me be clear while I say well there's no laws in the US about it not I'm not saying this is okay of course not like absolutely not this is totally on Shane Black like you shouldn't have hired your buddy like you shouldn't have not told anybody that's certainly a mistake like there's a lot of things wrong here but it's a, it's a bummer in the way that it has kind of given a spin on things because it's supposed to be like a predator reboot you know predators right up there with something like alien and and like now it's got this on it yeah and and that's not good and that is entirely shane black's fault like i don't i don't blame olivia munn for what she did it's a bummer that the other the the other cast members have gotten tangled on this and now i'm seeing articles like well sterling k brown said this and and keegan michael key said like okay all right like this is this is really getting getting spun in 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 a weird way And and i guess it should but it, like it's just this sucks. This happened. Like yeah, it's it's a bad situation all around. Yeah, and w- and uh, you know I want to quote something that Olivia Munn said on the Ellen DeGeneres show, uh, which we watched this brief interview interview before the show. Mm. Um, and she said that you know the reason that this is important and that this is an issue is that being in the movies kind of gives gives you a little bit of fame. Like there's stars and there's people who aren't, but anyone who is in the movies kind of gets a little bit of notoriety and yeah. if you give that to someone who's a convicted sex offender convicted like sexual predator you are maybe not knowingly but enabling this to maybe happen again right and that's and that's i think something that people forget because a lot of times they'll just say they'll compare you know working in the movies to their own job but it's just a, a guy you know who was convicted trying trying to get work but working in the movies is different it becomes you there's responsibility you are given you know some weird power. I mean, if if you say, yeah. "Oh yeah, I was in this movie," that you know, you can leverage that yeah. into something. That'll and look so, great on an IMDb page. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, she's absolutely right, and I've heard other people say that uh, again. Is that um, with the Me Too movement? Is that when nothing happens, you essentially enable this kind of behavior to happen again in the future? Yeah. Well, 
I don't have much much more to say about it. I don't know if you do, other than yeah, it's it's kind of a bad situation all around. Shane Black, not a good look, family. It's not not good. Probably shouldn't have done that. You know, that seems like a mistake. Should have let the studio know. Um, I you know I some people have said well, apparently Fox chastised Olivia Munn when they when she said something publicly and they didn't want her to. I'm, okay, well they're, they they got to make money and I I don't know. Like everybody gets in the weeds and, and like overall it's all bad you know i think the people if you're i think if you're a reasonable uh level-headed individual and 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 you're thinking well this person is right and this person is wrong in this situation you're probably right like it it kind of is what it seems to be i I think uh this shouldn't have happened but it's movie news yeah in in a (laughs) slow movie news week we got to talk about something that's what we're talking about and with that we should move right into our first film really fast this week uh satoshi khan's perfect blue i think i'm saying that right satoshi khan satoshi khan it's fine uh Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. It is a 20-year-old film. It came out in 1998 in Japan. Uh, this isn't. I was about to say Academy Awarding film, award-winning film. Uh, this, this is a kind of a groundbreaking anime uh, movie. If, for anybody who's not familiar, anime is of course animated from Japan. <laughs> well, just, why am I trying to define? What am I doing? You know what anime is. It's fine. Uh, and Perfect Blue is 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 kind of a, a staple in the genre of realistic or serious anime it's very adult uh it's very dark and and it kind of broke some ground in in, when it came out because it was based on a novel first i should say that the story is a a retired pop singer turned actress uh kind of discovers things in her life aren't the way they seem when she finds she is being stalked by an obsessed fan and a ghost of her past essentially if that makes sense yeah uh, she she begins to see things. Reality begins to distort, uh, and you get some really really cool effects um, in a way that can only be done with animation. I did a little looking into this movie after we saw it because this is one of those movies like it it's it definitely worth two watches, if not yeah. at the very least a watch and then some analysis. Uh, what I didn't know about this uh, originally, Perfect Blue was supposed to be live action. It's supposed to be. Oh okay. Yeah. And they pivoted at the last second because they ran into budget issues and Satoshi Kon was like, well, maybe we can just do it animated. Maybe it'll work that way. And it turns out it, it arguably works better. Um, but yeah. before we get too far into it, Andy, what did you think of Perfect Blue? Um, so I didn't really know what to think. This was your first time seeing it. Yeah. So, uh, and the reason I was interested in it is I, I saw an article that had like, you know, top 50 anime films of all time. And this was like number two or three. It's or up there, man. Four. It was. It's it, really good. It was in the top five, and I yeah. was like, "Oh man, I should see that." And then I saw that they were doing this twentieth anniversary screening, uh, where we saw it at uh, the Cinemark down the road. Which, by the way, I, I, maybe I'm off about this, but it came out in '98 in Japan in February, and I think here, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but like I don't think it came out much later, like September. So I think we're a little off on that twentieth anniversary screening. But I guess you got you got to make those dimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Somebody's got to make that cheddar. So, yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. Anyway, so yeah, we saw it down the road, and uh, I just didn't know what to expect, and uh, I really liked it. Uh, so I'll start start there. Yeah. Um. It's very it's very complex. It's very serious. It you know touches on themes of um, like exploitation, mm-hmm. and uh, even though it's twenty years old, it was it's kind of ahead of its time because it, it deals with this this idea of the way we present ourselves to the public or to the world and then who we really are, which in the era of, of social media is very relevant. 
Right. Um, and it, it's, yeah, I mean, it has a lot of the anime staples. Like there, there is, are scenes of incredible violence. Um, oh, man. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some things that are really hard to watch, which I know, you know, happens in, in anime, but it, some of it was even, yeah, it was tough for me even. Yeah. I, I should say before we get too far into this, uh, mild spoilers. I, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I want to talk about some scenes in here that are sure. graphic. Um, and, and again, it's 20 years old. I feel okay doing that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give away the ending because it really is a movie worth sitting down and watching from start to finish. But it's about, I think it's it's something like 100 minutes. It's not that long. Oh, it's short. It, I think it's 80. Which, which a little is, over 80. It's funny because watching it you pointed out afterwards like it could have been longer this movie could be double its length and still work like it's fast it moves real fast yeah. for for 100 minutes like it's it's a very complex plot and and it moves arguably too fast i think that's part of the point it's an anime but it's older right it is 97 so you're already not you're not looking at something that's super like saturated and bright and this movie doesn't do that it's actually supposed to be very close to realism like the the, the all of the proportions in it are realistic these people are supposed to look like real people uh, a lot of i noticed uh, ads in the background sometimes you'll see like on a subway train or something uh, or a bullet train i guess you'll see like an ad for something and it'll be like a real person on the ad they'll yeah, use real people yeah like they tried to make this look like reality yeah and not like sailor moon or right something. exactly they didn't want this to be like fantasy anime like nope this wants this should be as close to real as possible um the beginning of our story we start off with her name is mima mima that's it i was gonna say mimi mima uh she is a pop idol and she's making the conversion to actress she's performing at her last show and her outfit and the outfits of, of her of her coworkers is is arguably a little at least to me it felt a little awkward because like in a, normally in an anime you get like super bright and flashy Sailor Moon esque and this is like very real proportions kind of um, I don't want to say goofy outfits but you know they're not normal outfits yeah. they're wearing they're wearing pop idol outfits and that I think is important they're up on a stage people are watching them it it helps separate like that life from reality it's 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 a, it's a stage it's a performance it's not real and like that's important in this movie because reality kind of blurs a little bit once once mima starts to make her transition into an actress uh, she starts to kind of see things she starts to see images of herself as as a pop idol in the past she starts to have conversations with herself or, or seemingly imaginary people things start to get weird and and the movie does a clever thing where you can't really tell whether or not you're in reality or in a dream or right. what you're watching exactly and and it starts to intersperse reality with these things that may not be reality in a real fast way like it starts it once it gets going it really gets yeah, going the, the editing is so fast and yeah. and i want to go back to what you said at the beginning mm -hmm. where you know she's performing on stage and then it juxtaposes that with her like shopping for groceries and doing very mundane things and it's it's edited very well, but then it also again reflects that that idea of who we present ourselves versus who we are. Right, and and I, I want to take a second while we're talking about that to talk about kind of the presentation of this movie because we're watching Mima and her life, but like we're watching it from far away, and in these shots where she's kind of just doing normal mundane, she's on the train, she's in the grocery store, we're watching it from far away. And it's a clever it's a clever technique that's used in film to make it feel like we're peering in on her life. And then at the end of this little montage where she's singing and dancing on stage and it's intercutting between like what's happening, you know, in reality, uh, she gets back to her house in the evening, her little apartment, her crummy little apartment, like because she doesn't live in some glamorous place, even though she's a pop idol, she just lives in a normal, normal apartment like anybody else. She stops and she like looks out over the balcony and, just, and, and this camera angle just pulls way back and it's like the world is watching her, uh, even though she's kind of alone and doing her own thing it's this clever way of making us the audience feel like we're 
peering in on her life in the same way like a stalker might, which is effective because right. that comes up in the film. Like you get this kind of shady character at the beginning who seems to kind of just crop up in her life in weird places. And again, you can't really tell whether or not he's there or not or, or, or who is who. Um, it's a great kind of mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And it really keeps you tuned in. Uh, so another th- thing that c- kind of stands out to me about the movie is it's kind of a, about the exploitation of women in kind of entertainment. Um, when she makes the transition from, you know, pop singer to actress, it's not really her choice. Her managers are, are have discussed this and say, oh, you know, this is the move for you now. This is the right time for you to go in, go into acting. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, oh, okay, you know, that, that seems all right. Um, so none of her choices are, are really hers. And then, you know, she starts getting in roles and her managers eventually put her in in roles she doesn't really want to do. Yeah, some, in, some questionable roles, yeah, certainly. In, in an effort to, you know, according to them, you know, get get you through this, uh, you know, beginning part of your act. You got to pay your dues as an actress. And, like, those roles get worse and, and worse and, and worse. <laughs> right. And these are exploitative because uh, in a great conversation with some of the folks we went and saw this movie with, uh, shout out to them if they're listening, um, you know, uh, pop idols in Japan, they're, they're put on a pedestal in a real odd way. Their, their whole lives are, like, under scrutiny, and they can't date anybody and they're 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 like supposed to be this pure unadulterated kind of completely unrealistic thing um much unlike uh you know pop stars in america like we're we're, we're yeah. just like you know let your freak flag fly now over there it's it's very particular and your whole life is like orchestrated uh, to the letter this was a thing 20 years ago it's still a thing now this movie was ahead of its time in that way and so when mima makes the transition from pop idol to actress like She's kind of, yeah, she's put into positions that are frankly exploitative of, of her past life. Uh, and, and, that, and that kind of leads to a crisis of self uh, and, and kind yeah. of self-identity and who I am and who people want me to be. And that's really played out well with animation. Like, I, it comes across better, I think, than it might have in live action. Yeah. Uh, which is really, really something else. I, I did want to talk about, before we get too far into it, the <laughs> graphic nature of this film. Yes. Because it, man... Like it's it there there are parts where you're just straight uncomfortable like for minutes on end yeah like it, it and uh, it's tough to talk about it really is because I don't want to get too far into it there there's there there's parts that are uncomfortable in the way you're just like oh my god I wish this scene would just end and and the movie plays with your emotions in that way because. Oftentimes, being an actress, Mima is on a set, and and you get this very meta presentation of like a camera crew filming her and a director, and you'll be in this super uncomfortable scene, and they'll shout "cut," all right, let's do it again, and, and like everything resets, and then it just continues, and you're like, oh god, like <laughs> it's not over yet, you know, I can't, I can't get out of this, and like you end up in this loop that I think is reflective of of Mima's feelings of her own life. Um, which is really neat. Yeah, and it, as she starts to kind of get further and further in the in the acting business, that's when um, she seems to start slowly kind of losing her mind or her, her grasp on reality starts to become real mm-hmm. fluid. And this is uh, one of the really impressive, impressive parts of the film where, uh, I mean, I, I just completely lost track of which version of the events <sighs> is, is re- like I can't tell what's real versus what's hallucinated versus what's dreamed versus what's, you know, part of the a TV series that, that she's filming or right. maybe she's filming. And, and it works so well, I think, like you were saying, in animation, just because it's it's so easy to blend scenes and say, you know, that like you, it's so hard to tell the difference between what yeah. is 
the real the real life story versus the hallucinated right for some reason even though it's supposed to be very realistic proportions like keeping this story on a page instead of on on film like it it makes it feel just a step away from reality which may hinder it at the end of the day and its impact but it also like helps me watch it and not just be like oh my god turn this off i can't watch this anymore because there's some i mean there's some stuff in there that's uh questionable I also the violence um there's a scene in this there's a few scenes of violence in this in this movie there's there's one scene in particular of, of a a stabbing that is like so gnarly like i i forgot and like watching it on a screen like it is it is grisly brutal and if you're thinking how could an anime be grisly check it out like seriously you you will not be disappointed i i i almost I almost started laughing because I was like, dude, this is <laughs> so, just so there's like yeah. heavy metal playing and there's a guy getting stabbed and it's like it's it's real rough and it, it, it is slow and it takes its time and it makes you watch and it it's it's really really something to get that kind of violence out of animation. Yeah, and it's amazing how much is it this movie in eighty minutes. Yeah. Um oh, hundred minutes. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is that it's it's very um so Darren Aronofsky uh, who did Black Swan yes. was very much inspired by this film and he actually bought and owns the rights to Perfect Blue. Right. Um, some people would go as far as to say he ripped it off. I won't say that, but there are a lot of similarities and that film deals with a lot of the same things about the the, the duality. Right. If you've if you've seen Black Swan, this is undeniably close. I mean it is it is it would be a brilliant double feature to watch one after the other. Like they're they're very close films uh, in a different way, of course. One is about a pop star or a pop idol in Japan. The other is about a ballet dancer in New York. Like, very, fairly different, but essentially the same. I mean, uh, and if you like that, you should absolutely check out Perfect Blue. Um, I, I, why is it called Perfect Blue? That's the one other thing I feel like we should get to before we, we get too far into this. I, you know, I don't know. Why, okay. is it, why is it called Perfect Blue? Tell the, us. The theory why it's called Perfect Blue is because a lot of the film is presented in shades of blue and things that stand out, things that are important, things that are tied to reality are presented in something like red. Uh, there's, there's really a clever motif of overexposure and underexposure in this in this film. I, I watched a great analysis on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it. It's called uh, Satoshi Khan and why all you need is love by a guy named bread sword it's like a 30 minute thing if you only watch if you've seen the movie by the way because you're not going to get it if you haven't but if you've seen the perfect blue check it out uh his theory is 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 it's a matter of exposure i can show you in this shot here and people who are listening can't see this so it's fine (laughs) uh where she's like super overexposed and there's like no shadow that's supposed to be not real that's a dream and like so whenever you get that in the movie that's not reality and like i didn't pick up on that watching it i'd have to go back and watch it again maybe there's something to that there probably is something to that but there's there's a lot of like play with color and exposure yeah i do think some of that might be hindered because we're talking about 20 year old animation and like it just doesn't come across as well like i said at the beginning more modern animation it's more saturated the color's more crisp here it's a little more washed out yeah which i think kind of hurts that experience that that like you know like that, the movie feature, looks but the, the movie looks older than it is like it doesn't yeah. it looks like an anime from the 80s right so when not. you're when you're playing with color motif like in, in a 20 year you know it's it's tough to come across but it's there uh if you want it and there's definitely this is one of those movies that you can really dig into analysis on you could get real in the weeds on what things mean and what things don't mean but overall i i I mean i have to say regardless of how i felt through the journey it does feel like it wraps up pretty well like i i I never felt like i was particularly 
I take it back. I felt like I was lost, but the movie brings you back by the end. So yeah. if you're if we're talking about this and you're thinking, well, this this sounds vague. Yeah, what is this supposed to be? It comes around. So it's 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 worth it, I think, to sit down and watch the whole experience. Just for the love of God, don't watch it with your parents or anything. Like just, <laughs> so woo. one of one of the things I, I read though was that um you're not really supposed to figure it out. Like you like you can't sit down with pencil and paper and like figure out the scenes that are real or aren't. Like that's not the point. The, right. the point is that you're supposed to feel lost and disoriented between what is real and what isn't right the, I, and that was my kind of problem with with his analysis that, that yeah it's so easily definable i'm like i don't think so yeah like i i think it's more about you know the experience and what you take away from it and that's what matters in a way similar to 2001 which is why i'd say this movie is arguably experimental and with that being said we should probably move on to our next one andy what did you think of perfect blue um or would you recommend perfect yeah, blue yeah. i guess is the question i need to ask um well I, I I would to some people. Ooh, um, okay. I I, re, I mean I really enjoyed it. Um, it's bold cinema for sure. It is bold cinema. Um, but it, it is very violent. There are several scenes of graphic sexual assault. Mm, yeah. Um, so you know those those two things. I mean, if that might be an issue for for people. So I anyone who I would recommend it to anyone, but you definitely need to know what you get getting into. Yeah, and it's like serious psychological graphic it's yeah it's it's a deep solid film and I, uh, you just you need to be know what you're getting into yeah I, I i hate to say we need to throw something like a trigger warning in front of this but like really in the case of i, I think there's probably some people out there that would not enjoy watching this movie for scenes of graphic sexual violence graphic sexual violence <laughs> well not like graphic but pretty graphic <laughs> it's fine uh it's, it's about as good a tease as you're gonna get and definitely like just graphic violence in general. There's some there's some bad things that happen to people in this movie. So uh, it does come around, though. It is a mystery that I feel wraps up with a satisfying conclusion. And for that, I would absolutely recommend this, Perfect Blue, or any other work by Mr. Satoshi Khan. I don't know if you've seen any other, Andy. I haven't, but I've heard good things about it. I haven't it. seen all of them. Uh, if I could recommend one immediately, I'd say Paprika. I think that was his final film. It is totally awesome. And we're going to watch that at some point. I'm going to make you sit down and watch that movie, and you're going right. to be like, it's bold. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's Perfect Blue. Worth your time. I, I, I can't say it's available anywhere to stream right now, which is a shame. No, probably not. Because if it was, I'd say, well, this is this is perfect. Uh, Amazon has it on disc. You can buy it. So uh, if you catch a if you catch a screening maybe in your town, go check it out. If not, um, I hate to say wait till it's on streaming somewhere, but like wait till it wait till it shows up yeah. on streaming somewhere. It'd be fine. It'd be great. Anyway. The next thing we need to talk about is a, a film that is not quite like Perfect Blue. Fairly different, actually. We talked about this last week. Uh, we're going to have a brief discussion on Crazy Rich Asians. That's right. And we already talked about it. And this isn't like Death of Cinema or anything. Uh, we had a conversation uh, after Perfect Blue with some of the folks that went and saw it about something we missed in our Crazy Rich Asians conversation. This is, And technically, this isn't something... Well, I guess we did miss it. It's not that I, I, I want to say, I, I, it's not that I missed it. I felt like something was off about it. And the fact is that I missed something and that's why it felt off. So right. in a way, I caught it just in the wrong way. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm only half wrong. Yes. Andy, you want to kind of set the stage yeah. for us? So after uh, after we saw Perfect Blue and we were talking talking movies, uh, my good friend uh, Newton was, he was asking us about cra uh, Crazy Rich Asians because we'd gone and seen it. And uh, he asked us about the uh, Mahjong scene, which yeah. I had heard a, a lot about that we needed to pay attention. And uh, and I was like, yeah, we, we saw it, but uh, like I was like, I don't play Mahjong. I don't know like what this is supposed to be about. Right. And so he had to sit there and explain to us w why it's so relevant. And, and the reason it is, uh, spoilers for Crazy Rich Asians, is that uh, Rachel, the main character, has 
I guess the winning hand uh, several times or whatever. And she, and she knowingly gives it up so that um, the mother-in-law can win. And that's representative of her giving up. Is it Henry? Yeah. Uh, Giving up her fiance so that he does, he doesn't lose his family. So the game is representational of the situation. Right. Mahjong is a game of, of like give and take. You give up tiles and other people take them and you try to complete sets. That's great. So he explained to us that, like, for folks in the audience who are particularly Asian or of Asian descent, right? I know. Don't don't <laughs> laugh. Don't do that to me. I'm trying Sorry. to. I'm trying to. Particularly <laughs> people, Asian people who play mahjong. Those of you out there who play mahjong, yeah, like it matters more to you because you understand like the heritage behind it, and that's a thing in the movie. That's a that's a very present theme that we did kind of skip. Well, I think feel like we mentioned it, but we didn't get into it enough. I think that. Uh, the idea of like Americanized Chinese people, right? Like, oh yeah, you're you're Chinese, but like you're American Chinese. It's not the same. Like, there's a line here, and you can't cross it. That's a thing in the movie. Like, the the mother has very much problems with Rachel because of that. She's like, you're not the same. Right. You're different from us. Like, even though you speak our language and you understand a lot of our traditions, you are objectively different. And like the the mahjong scene is important in that theme right it's very important it, it is arguably like the linchpin of that theme that th- at least that's what we were told by your friend newton so here here's the problem <laughs> here's here's where two people who don't understand asian heritage break this down here it comes like if we don't know that going into the movie we miss that whole bit yeah like you you, you have to uh you have to explain the game so that people understand yeah like if at least a little bit like something and if you don't explain how mahjong works a lot of your audience is gonna miss that and like that's not our fault that we don't know that (laughs) i didn't know like we had to have like prerequisite information to get that scene and while it does make that scene special for certain parts of the audience which arguably has a better effect than just watering it down for everybody else who doesn't know any better and I, i agree i'm into that like, you see why we review the movie and we're like, yeah, the thing at the end, it didn't make any sense. Like, that's why. <laughs> because it didn't to us. And, like, I'm bummed that I didn't get that. I wish I had had that information communicated in a way that it was, like, effective and maybe subtle so not everybody got it. And so you had to really look for it and pay attention. I, I wish that had been more of a thing. I think that's why I said it felt like an editing problem. It felt like... Yeah. They, because well, to me, it felt like there had probably... Maybe there was a scene they shot where they explained Mahjong and they were like, that's ah, not that funny. We'll cut it for time. It's fine. You yeah. know, it's it feels like it feels movie, like something important is happening, but you yeah. don't know what that is. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, it feels like you, you like you cut a scene out of the film that was important, and, and like that that's why it felt weird. Now that he's now that Newton Newton explained that to me. <laughs> Newton is probably not the best. Newton explained that to me. Uh, <laughs> I I get it a little bit more. Uh, God, I'm really. I mean, just, his, his, the way he explained it to us, it would like he explained it through poker. You yeah, know, as if if you had the winning hand and you knowingly gave it up so that you, this the other player would win, right? Um, Which would talk. Go ahead. And that knows. I mean, if you know, but even then, if you don't know poker, that's going to have to be explained to you, if, right? And you could have done that with any game. It could have been chess. Like same thing. You're going to have to explain a little bit of the game so the people that don't play know. So this is really a larger conversation about the flaws in the movie (laughs) right here's why it's the movie's fault no 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 hear me out uh this has been a criticism of i think the new yorker in regards to marvel films they don't like them because the way they see it 
you won't get it if you haven't seen the previous stuff. And in, in, in any good film, you shouldn't have to go in knowing the material already. You shouldn't have to study. You shouldn't have to be. You shouldn't have to know what's up to go see and enjoy the movie, especially if it's not like a direct sequel. And in the case of something like Black Panther, their argument is that's what happens. Like you can't enjoy it as much if you haven't seen all the other Marvel movies. They build yeah. upon each other. And while Crazy Rich Asians isn't a Marvel movie, like if you're building on information I'm already supposed to know and I don't know that, that hurts your film. That doesn't help like my opinion of it. That that hurts it. But it does have a resounding effect on the people that know it because it feels like you're, I don't want to say in on the joke, but it's like you get it. You, yeah. you get it in a way that other people don't. And there's value there. I just wish I hadn't been left out. Like I wish yeah. I could have been a part of that. So yeah. Well, and I think it's a balance. You can do both. You can be, what am I trying to say? You can be kind of true or be real specific about a certain heritage or characteristics about culture and still bring other people along. Right. There, I think I think there's a way to do that. And whether that's filming a very obvious Mahjong scene or or maybe writing in a couple extra lines of dialogue at the, in that opening scene where Rachel's playing poker against a student yeah, and changing that game to Mahjong and just explaining it, I'm like, then I couldn't I couldn't grandstand here. I couldn't be like, oh, well, you didn't explain it to me. No, I just wasn't paying attention. But it never happened. Like, it doesn't, it just isn't yeah, in I, the movie, and I, it, it feels odd for it. Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to figure that out if you don't already know. Yeah, and like, <laughs> I, I see the up and down sides of that. I, I, like, I get that, like, well, for, you know, for, for Asians that go see this movie, it speaks to them more. I'm glad. That's great. But for everybody else we feel like we don't get it. And like, I, 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 I don't know if I, I prefer that, if that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it's worth talking about. So that's why we're talking about it now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad I finally understand what, cause everyone kept saying, Oh, the Mahjong scene. Oh, the Mahjong scene. You have to see, you have to pay attention. I know. And like, I did. And then I was like, what happened? Yeah. And now I get it. And I'm like, wow. Okay. That's great. But I had to have somebody explain it to me. For hate mail, please address uh, <laughs> mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. That's where you can write us and tell us how horrible we are. Um, oh, God. I hope I stumbled through that okay. Next up, uh, we're going to talk about a movie. <laughs> it's ready to go. Andy has so graciously agreed to take the summary for Andy, take it away. We're looking at the Coen brothers' No Country for Old Men. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost. So this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I um, so this won the Oscar in 2007 Best Picture. Uh, I think it won a couple of other awards. Uh, I think Tommy Lee Jones won Best Supporting Actor, uh, maybe Original Screen Screenplay mm-hmm. um, or Adapted Screenplay. And this is one of those Oscar films that I love to rewatch. And most Best Picture winners, I, I really don't like. I haven't I haven't rewatched the artist since <laughs> since it won you know oh yeah the artist exactly yeah. so um but no i i love watching this film and every time i see it i catch more and more so the setup is josh brolin plays Llewellyn moss who uh this t- story takes place out in west texas in 1980 um he's out hunting one day and he comes across uh what appears to be a drug deal gone wrong there's a bunch of trucks a bunch of bullet holes and everyone is dead um, and he kind of wanders around looking to see if there's a last man standing and um, finds them deceased and discovers a briefcase full of $2 million in cold, hard cash. Um, so he thinks he's 
you know, this is the luckiest day of his life. He makes off with the cash. Um, but of course, there's people that come after it. There's the Mexican cartel, and then there's also this um, incredibly classic villain uh, slash a hitman. Psychopathic killer, I yes. think is fair. Yeah. <laughs> that comes after him, a bounty hunter named uh, Anton Chigurh, played brilliantly by Javier Bardem. Um, and then they are trailed by um, Tommy Lee Jones's character as the sheriff's sheriff's sheriff um, Ed Tom Bell. So we it's a neo western that's got a little bit of a cat and mouse in it, mm. um, but it's also extremely complex. Yeah, um, Zach, what do you think? Uh, man, I had never seen this movie before. I think it's an important place to start. It. I always heard great things, uh, but I had also heard it's boring. And when you got a title like No Country for Old... Well, like any title with old men in it, like <laughs> it's going to hurt, right? I mean, that's been a problem with uh, Robert Redford's new movie, The Old Man and the Gun. People are like, old oh, man, like what's cool about that? Like th there's there's something to that. And it's it's a Cohen film. And uh, man, I'm I'm hit or miss with, with the Coens. Like I I either adore one of their movies or can't stand it. And, and in the case of something like Lebowski, like well, arguably one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, in the case of something like... Um, Okay, I'm, I'm struggling. Thank you for reading. Uh, I'm, str I'm struggling to think of, of one I burn after burn reading. Burn after yeah, reading, yeah. Or, or I, I, maybe even Miller's Crossing. Like I, I'm t I struggle with it. Uh, but this movie, I was really surprised. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Like it, it's it's not even one game of cat and mouse. There's basically there's arguably two, maybe yeah. even three at one point. Like there's there's a lot of following going on. There's a lot of like trail leaving and and in. I, in that very neo-Western sense, like you said, there's a lot of, you know, good or maybe even bad people following those trails and just kind of keeping up one one step behind each other. Like, and it's really it's really intriguing to see this, like, classic cast of Cohen characters uh, just tumbling through, like, the same set of actions uh, one after another and, and responding and, and doing something different and leaving, again, a subsequent trail for the next one. Like, you've got Llewellyn uh, played really really fantastically by josh brolin who at the beginning of the movie i was like my god another brolin flick like how are we not <laughs> done with this guy but given this was uh 2007 2007 11 years ago brolin looks a little younger all right so it's not quite as like grisly josh brolin he's a little bit you know uh which, which works great for his character he's a little bit more foolhardy uh you've got javier bardem playing anton chigur in a role that i i mean defined his career yes i, I would very say much so point. yeah you, you he wasn't really even on the map before this. And then you've got Tommy Lee Jones kind of following him uh, and, and and the two of them. Playing and, and Tommy Lee Jones. Playing Tommy Lee Jones. You've also got Woody Harrelson in there. Uh, it just kind of kind of all over, kind of spread even across the map, but it doesn't, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I, I should say, I, I do want to talk about spoilers in this movie, and before we get to that, we'll big, make a big spoiler announcement. Okay. So if you're, okay. if you're enjoying where we're going now, it's fine. Keep listening. If not, we'll let you know. Um... Where do we? Where, well, so what, I was, what can be said, Andy? <laughs> well, uh, I just want to give some of my impressions. So, um, one of the reasons I, I love this movie, there's so much tension. Like, there's so much tension built. Like, there's characters that are very close to each other, like in physical space, and they just don't know it. Like, there, there's a great scene uh, where um, Llewellyn Moss is in, in a hotel room, and he's kind of rented a couple of rooms to kind of go between, and um, you know. Uh, Sugar tracks him down, or he, he knows he's in that area. And again, this is 1980, so 
it's not exact. I don't got cell phones, uh, but he's kind of in the area. And the thing is, there's real, there's incredible violence uh, throughout the movie. And this is why I don't get why people say it's boring. I was like, someone gets killed like every seven minutes. A lot of people die in this movie. There's yeah, yeah. like within the first three minutes, I think someone 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 gets killed. Yeah. Um, but but there's lots of tension, and um, Llewellyn is an interesting character because he's. You know he's he's greedy, like he steal, he essentially steals this money. But um, he he's got kind of a moral code because th- if he would have just stolen the money and not and just stayed with it, he would have been fine. But he feels guilty because there's he knows that there's one man left, kind of half alive, out in the desert, and he's like, well, you know, I really should have given that guy water. And so he decides to go bring this guy water, and then he gets you know that's where he starts getting tracked because mm-hmm. he shows up to the crime scene again, right. Which you know, it, 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 again, not not to keep reiterating classic Cohen characters, but like really, like in a Cohen film, characters are complex and multifaceted. In the case of our our man Llewellyn, very much so. Like on the one hand, he's the kind of guy that's like wandering around out in the desert in the middle of the day with a gun, hunting things. Right? What is this? What? Who is this layabout? Who is this vagabond? Like what? Are you, what? He doesn't have a job. He stumbles onto this scene with these characters and and very quickly figures out, hmm, okay, something bad has happened here. Doesn't help the one guy who's given him any information about this, leaves him to die essentially in the desert, and and stumbles onto this money and and decides, you know what? I'm keeping this. Like and and then he feels guilty and then he goes back to do something about it. After he's gone home and hung out with his wife? Wife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that evening he gets up, okay, I'm going out. Then he goes to give him water. Like, there's so much that can be said about a character in just that little bit. Yeah. You know? And, it, and he has a great line where, where she asks what he's doing, and he's like, I'm about to go do the stupidest thing ever, <laughs> but uh, I'm still going to go do it. Yeah. And and again, that doesn't work out for him. Like, that, that is where he starts to get tracked, essentially. Right. That, that is where things start to go south for our man Llewellyn. But he's kind of a smart guy he, he's he stays yeah, one step ahead yeah he's, he's a, the mouse staying ahead of the cat he's a, a former vet right and so it's right around here we get the introduction of our main villain javier bardem anton sugar played uh brilliantly by javier bardem um because he's just like ice cold i mean you can't yeah. get a read on the guy you, you cannot figure out what his game is what he wants like you can't you can't get any motivation from him but uh, he's he's cold but he's got a, a weird code at the same sure. time right he's, he's got a very like i don't want to say like harvey dent-esque kind of thing but he's got this motif with a coin that comes up and this idea of of nihilistic randomness that like this is just the way things are and this is played brilliantly in the background in a very cohen fashion with this motif of a storm just kind of rolling in in the uh, in, in the sky and in, in, in the background of these scenes with Ellen, like bad things are brewing things are going to happen that are bad you know it's it's, it's really a little heavy-handed, but well done. And yeah, I'm talking too much, so please. Well, me. I mean, yeah, he he's a nice cold killer, but at the same time, sometimes he doesn't kill. And and there's this what has now become a famous scene in the uh, uh, gas station w- with the clerk, and uh, he's talking with uh, the clerk, and the clerk's just trying to you know be nice, make small talk, and it starts to it 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 annoys Sugar, and then he starts to toy with him. You know, the, the clerk says, "Well, uh, that that will that be it." And he's like, well, well, will it? 
and he just doesn't leave. Like you know, th- here was your your signal that you should leave, and we're done. And he just d- doesn't, and he just like then the cat and mouse happens with them verbally. Right, and it's a great way to introduce a villain. Villains need to be complex to be interesting. Marvel movies struggle with that, but occasionally they hit the nail on the head. And Anton Chigurh in this inter- in this kind of essentially introductory scene. I think we do see him before that, but essentially the first time we really get to know him in this conversation. Yeah, we get this great effect where he is a customer in a gas station, right? You are you are the 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 subservient individual in this relationship with a gas station clerk, probably the owner, this older guy, and you're thinking, okay, you're going to buy your stuff and leave, and that doesn't go that way. But he doesn't he doesn't hurt him right away. He just toys with him, like he just and the power just shifts slowly in the conversation. You realize that this guy, this bad guy is holding all the cards here and you're just waiting and just like Tarantino in, in good suspense it's like stretching a rubber band as far as you can then just going a little farther every second and just draw that tension out and that suspense and wait for that thing to snap and you're just holding it and Shiger or I should say Bardem does it brilliantly like it's so well done eye contact yeah you don't really know where he's going in conversation you don't know what to expect him to say next he doesn't freak out he doesn't like do anything brash he just very slowly kind of talks this guy up and then subsequently back down uh, it's really clever and it's a great way to make a complex villain yeah because if, if he just killed everyone he came in contact with which he mostly does um then it, th- that would be boring but yeah. the, f- the fact that you because you get the idea that maybe you can talk your way out of it maybe you can you know negotiate with him right yeah, maybe maybe there's a way to deal with this stranger. Um, and and again, he, he's he's echoed by this kind of coming storm thing, and he's got this bit in his uh, m- monologue about a, a a coin that comes up a couple times. The, the idea that like, well, you know, it's just a, it's it's not so much about how it or even why. It's just because like the yeah. things just happen because they happen, and that's the way it is. And like, there, there's no you know, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, sometimes bad things happen. To anybody, good people, bad, it's irrelevant, uh, and I love that. Yeah. So, so I wanted to, sorry to go <laughs> to go on. I wanted no, no. I wanted to talk about um, Tommy Lee Jones's character, who we don't see, by the way. I checked until twenty eight minutes into the film. Yeah, but he does. He has the initial voiceover. He does, and then you do not see him again for a half hour. And his his um, his dialogue is so good, and he's got a lot of like this really dark dark humor. Um, but he, he kind of represents a character um, that kind of represents the old ways. And one of the themes of the, of the movie, and we know I'm all about themes and meanings, it's it's about, like, um, the nature of, of evil in the world. And uh, this this idea of, oh, the good old days, you know, things were, were great. And, um, you know, he, his opening monologue, he talks about, oh, the old sheriffs, they didn't even carry a gun. You know, mm-hmm. my, my, yeah. gr- my granddaddy and his friends, uh, they, they were just sheriffs without, they didn't even need them. And now it's, you know totally crazy and and but what what the movie kind of shows us is is through his character is because over the film he's essentially losing that mindset of like wow the world is really not what it was and he's having a difficult time accepting that yeah but it's it's kind of juxtaposes like how we think the good old days were and maybe they weren't necessarily all that good right and and he he kind of struggles uh, not only internally but externally uh, like yeah. in, in his monologue to the camera like clearly this character struggles with dealing with like these incredible crimes that are happening uh, that he's he's following up on you know the, these grisly murders and 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 some guy on the run from somebody else and like he's just he's an old sheriff he's like you know he's, he's the Danny Glover I'm 2 days away from retirement but it poses this interesting question right that the Coen brothers like to pose that it's like 
what's the obligation here? What? Because of your job, you're obligated to do something about this. Like you have nothing to do with it. Like you're not even on the radar. You're not being chased. You're not being pursued. You're not pursuing anybody in particular. Like this is just bad news rolling through your town and just as quick as it came in, it'll be gone. And like you you could step in, you could make something happen or like you could just, you know, accept that the world is turning and the world has always been turning. And like maybe at the end of your great career as a sheriff, like it didn't really change anything. Like it's just the way yeah, things it's are. A, it's a little nihilistic. For yeah. Sure. Like definitely. But and there's, yeah, there's several characters who, who give store, give this idea of like, Oh, you know, if I would have known in 20 years, kids would have green hair. Like, you know, there's all, and it's a, it's an illusion. It's yeah. their, their disillusion with, with the idea, this nostalgic version of the past that never really existed. And it's set so cleverly, I should say in, in not only the eighties, but in this neo-Western place. It's in Texas, yeah. by the border, right? Very close to Mexico, and it's in the 80s. Man, the sheriffs in this in this, in this thing still ride around the desert on horses. Yeah. Now, they're in uniforms, clearly. They're oppressed, and, like, they don't look like they're out of, out of, out of the Old West, but, like, they look like they, they are immediately following, and, like, there's intentionality to that. It's Because this movie, in, in a way, is very similar to Western, right? A bad guy rolls into town, and the sheriff's got to catch him, but... It's it's postmodern in the way that it not only evolves in that genre, but it uses the landscape to tell a story that speaks towards what the Western used to be. And it's effective because we've got Tommy Lee Jones again at the beginning talking about how things used to be and they're not that way now. And then we get this story that is incredibly grisly uh, and and you got old Tommy Lee Jones just kind of following around like, well, uh, what are you going to do? You know, obviously it bugs him. He's, he's not just rolling over. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, like he, I, so he has this great dialogue that's really funny and very humorous. Um, but it, it's it's a kind of a coping me- mechanism to deal with like these horrible murders and, and tragedies. You know, um, uh, they they you know once the the sheriff and everyone discovers the drug deal and all. I mean, because there's like eight cars and like a heap of dead bodies right. out, out in the desert. Once you know the younger sheriff that's kind of working alongside uh tom bell says you know is do you think Llewellyn moss knows what what he's into is is uh you know do you think he knows he's in over his head and tommy lily jones has this great line he was like well he should he's seen the same things that i've seen it's certainly made an impression on me yeah he, he's been a couple steps ahead and yeah it all matters and he's so. just like he has all these great lines that are just like and they're after like you know, he reads this terrible story in the paper. He hears this terrible thing on the news or, a, you know, a colleague tells him about a, a new crime and he has a little short humorous quip, but it's like, it's coping. Right. Something I, I did, I did notice, which is very uh, self-serving here for me to talk about. Cause I, I don't, I don't know if you agree with this, but I was trying to talk about this earlier. And uh, Anton Sugar, his character uses two weapons in particular. Technically three. Uh, he does murder a guy by uh, strangling him yeah. uh, with handcuffs, which is there's probably some kind of Cohen motif there. But uh, he uses a silent shotgun and he uses a air tank for with a cattle cattle something or other something or other uh, an air cattle. gun yeah essentially to, to slaughter cattle. Uh, that's that's what this guy's walking around with big big oxygen tank and a silent shotgun. It's it's <laughs> it's oddly. Uh, modern, which to me I, I see as a, a presentation of like the future infringing on the past, right? Uh, the present, the the now uh, coming 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 up against the what the what was. You've got a guy walking around with because back in the day they used to shoot cattle. 
Uh, that was the answer. Or, or, you know, gut him or whatever. He's got now a very modern way of killing him. And that's how he's killing people. Uh, but he's killing them like cattle. Like yeah. they're just anybody else. And there's something there. But he's not doing it in a super grisly... Well, I mean, it's grisly, but... It could be worse, I guess, but he's got very a, streamlined. He's got a very modern way of doing it. Yeah, he's also got this shotgun with a silver silencer on the end that gives this super, to me, futuristic kind of like a whoom sound whenever he shoots it. It doesn't sound like a gunshot. It doesn't sound like any other gunshot in the film. It's completely unique. And not only is that to stand out for Sugar's character, but also, again, to me, it's it's a presentation of like here's the future. Here's what's coming. A silencer for a shotgun. It's got this kind of space <laughs> effect sound. In a town where, like, people are shooting pistols at each other, you know? Like, this guy rolls in, and it's supposed to be, like, this guy is the now. This guy is modern. He is the future. And he's rolling into this old town in a country not made for old men. And it's, like, it's overtaking. It overtakes what Tommy Lee Jones knows. Suddenly, he's a sheriff who doesn't carry a gun. Not only does he need one, he probably needs a couple. Big guns, yeah. you know? And that's that's part of what, what his his whole deal with a, a number of his monologues. It's, like, it's not that he's scared. It's that he just he doesn't want to go up against something he doesn't understand. Right. Like, yeah. why, well, like someone who kills some, right. someone as indiscriminately as Sugar does. Right. Why, why am I obligated to run up against that storm? Like, because of my job? Because of my title? You know? Like, I... Which, you know, like you pointed out earlier, it's like so many movies, uh, you know, I got to do it. It's the right thing. I'm a cop. Damn it. Like, I got to. Yeah, I got to do it. I got to. I got to. I didn't choose the force. The force chose me. And and this movie doesn't go. It doesn't say either way. It just poses the question. Do you? Do you have to do that? Like, and and that's what makes it so much fun. It leaves it up to us to answer, I think. Not in a particularly vague way at the ending, I should say. It doesn't end in like a particularly dissatisfying way. I think it ends fairly satisfying. Um, but a lot of people don't don't think that. And maybe this is where I should throw a spoiler tag, I guess. Probably. Yeah. Are we entering into spoiler territory? I think so. Not going to spend long here, though. You could probably skip ahead like three minutes, and I'll bet you'll be fine. All right, we can do this in three minutes. It's fine. Go okay, for it. so what part yeah. of the end are, are you referring to? Well, specifically that, that uh, Tommy Lee Jones does not catch... Sugar. Javier Bardem's character. He doesn't get him in the end. It's it's not like, ooh, the cat got the mouse. Nope. Doesn't happen. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, Javier Bardem's character catches, I should say, Anton Chigurh catches Llewellyn Moss. Uh, you don't, Ex- you don't actually, even... Actually, he doesn't. What? No. He's killed... Llewellyn is killed by the Mexican cartel. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I gotta watch this. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little hard to miss. So when... Uh, so he shows up to the hotel and the, the woman, like, says, hey, we should go get beers. And then the next scene is, like, Tommy Lee Jones coming up. And you see the Mexicans like running in and jumping in their truck, like like he get, he's killed by the cartel. I totally missed that. I must have been. Yeah. Well, this is this is an important uh, detail because um, you know the whole movie looks like it's gonna move towards a showdown between Sugar and Llewellyn Moss. You mm-hmm. know, at, at one point Llewellyn's, Llewellyn starts to get the upper hand. Two minutes. Right, and he uh, <laughs> so they kind of. And eventually, he's like, "I'm going to come after you. You're not, you don't have to worry about me coming coming to me." So it looks like it's going to be this this macho showdown, and then he's just totally he's randomly killed. Not random, but he's killed off screen. Yeah, you don't see it by the Mexican cartel. You never see, you never see it, and it's like it's it's subversive, but it's also I think in line with the theme of fate. Mm-hmm. You know, which is all kind of throughout out this film. Like, could Llewellyn have done anything different? Even though this guy's chasing him, he still ends up dead by this other means yeah and Llewellyn isn't, isn't dumb I mean he's got multiple hotel rooms he sends the wife away like he's got kind of a plan put together and he's, yeah. he executes it but 
it doesn't work out. And it's not necessarily his fault. Like, it kind of is just a question of, you know, was that always going to happen? Were you ever going to get away? Maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's a very Cohen thing in that way. I keep saying, oh, it's, it's Cohen. And yeah, it's great. But yeah. And that's part of the reason. So the other kind of shocking thing is that... Um, One he, minute. You know, uh, um, Shigeru finds his wife, Carla Jean, has a good conversation with her, ends up killing her as well, mm-hmm. um, despite, I mean, just out of principle, essentially. And then as he's leaving, he gets hit by a car. Right, ran just, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, and um, this is a really bad car wreck, and and it shows that kind of even he himself, as planned out and as meth- method, method- <laughs> as careful as he is, he right. still is you know can be subject and victim to fate. Right, he's not some kind of god force or anything. He is just as human as everybody else. Um, is he lucky? Is he skilled? Um, who knows? Yeah, like that's that's left up for us uh, for us to figure out. A little guess. of both, a little of both, and I think that's about it for spoiler talk. Okay. Three minutes that wasn't so bad. <laughs> that wasn't. Yeah, if you're tuning in now, uh, you didn't miss much, I guess. So it's fine. Uh, but I guess I, the the last thing I wanted to touch on it's it's obviously a little bit about greed as well. Um, a little bit. Everyone's yeah. everyone's after this money, but it's there's also characters who are just um, just inherently greedy and that's one of the like uh, there's a part where Llewellyn is injured and he's trying to get across the border and he, he runs across some like frat guys and he's like I'll, I'll give you $500 for your jacket and the guy doesn't and then he asks if he could have the uh, the beer that one of them's holding the guys well like how much you know it's like this guy's like clearly been in something terrible he's right. like blood everywhere and uh, mirrored very cleverly towards the end of the film again exactly yeah uh I think I think greed is definitely a motivating factor. I didn't think of it as much of one. I really didn't. Yeah, because to me, I'm like, you got this guy Llewellyn walking around in the desert, you know, hunting. Like clearly, guy's not, guy's not loaded. Uh, and and he finds his money. Like he didn't he didn't immediately go to a casino and start blowing it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna go buy a boat. Like nope. He went home. He had a beer. He hung out on the couch and watched TV. Like he didn't know what he was gonna do with it yet. But it was like this is something important and like to me that's why it didn't feel so much like greed it wasn't like i'm gonna go blow this on cigarettes like nope it it was i'm gonna set this aside think about it i'm gonna figure it out like it seemed like more of a i don't know you're stumbling across more than just money it's more than finding 20 bucks on the ground like it 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 was something and like maybe it's because it was the amount of money two million dollars i get it there's a great line in there when when he says to his wife like how you know how long are you gonna look for two million dollars before you give up like People are going to keep looking for this, you know. Yeah, yeah they're not just going to go away. This, doesn't, this problem doesn't just stop. Um, and it seems like he he knows that and he accepts that risk. And so that's why, to me, it seemed less like greed and more like I don't know, some kind of hunt for something greater, something important in life. Like I, I don't know what, but it, you're right. It, it is also money, so it, there is a bit of greed there. I, I'm I'm into that. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, and, and there's a lot of things that are very perplexing as, as well. Like I said, there's there's a great monologue at the beginning of the film. There's another one towards the end where um, uh, Sheriff Bell, and he does this several times through the film. He discusses his dreams with his wife. Yeah, and, and I think those are very important things. And I've I've, it's hard to follow along because I mean, just like anyone telling you their dream, it's hard to kind of reimagine. The mm-hmm. same thing happens. They're v- very kind of difficult to follow along, but I think they're very Im- important as well. And I've read l- different different kinds of analysis on what those dreams mean or can mean or represent. Yeah. Well, Andy, uh, I think we stumbled through our conversation uh, (laughs) in a a, a relatively clean uh, means. What did you think of No Country for Old Men? 
Uh, this is a modern classic, I think, and it's I think it's helped birth and establish the neo-Western. We've seen films such as Hell or High Water and also uh, Sicario, uh, later on Wind, Wind River as well, kind of yeah. in, that, in that genre as well. So it, it's it's an emerging genre that is you know rooted in the the horse and cowboy of the you know 50s and 60s but we've moved on and um i'm always excited for films like this and i would absolutely recommend this really enjoyed uh no country for old men i i, I need to have a sit down with somebody who thinks it's boring i really do i need i need to have a sit down and be like listen i'm not going to tell you you're wrong just explain to me why like let's help me kind of see that because i didn't I didn't get that vibe at all. I, I was tuned in for the entire two hours and two minute runtime of this movie. Uh, totally worth the price of admission. It is streaming now on Netflix, right? Yep. That's where we watched it. Probably not a date night movie, uh, but definitely like an, an introspective look. And it's not like particularly sad or anything. I, I didn't get to the end, of the end of this movie and feel like, man, what does life mean? Like, no, it's just a good two hour flick that I felt like I could watch and be like, you know what? That was worth my time. Like that is totally worth me watching. Really enjoyed it. Check out No Country for Old Men or any of the other Cohen films. It's really rewatchable as well. I've probably yeah. seen it six or seven times. And, and every time I, I learn just a, a little bit more, I catch a little bit more um, through each viewing. While we're at it, uh, since we have the opportunity, I'm talking about it right now, uh, Coen Brothers movies. Got another hot recommendation? Uh, I mean, this is probably the best one. Uh, Ooh, okay. I don't, I can't really, nothing really jumps. I mean, Fargo is a classic as well. I would argue Lebowski is the best one, but that's, that's just me. It's fine. It's fine. Lastly, uh, we should talk about what we're seeing next week. Yes. That's important. Uh, we got three movies coming out, and we're going to go see two of them. So All right. It's highly debated. Two theatrical films that's what we're willing to do for this show we are going to go see shane black's predators or the predator the predator the predator sorry this has been like two reboots and i like it come on give me a break and they they're not real good with coming up with original names no uh we're gonna go see the predator and we're also gonna go see matthew mcconaughey's white boy rick oh dear we're missing paul feig's Paul Feig, uh, we're missing a simple favor. I, I had not seen a trailer, watched it right before this. So I was like, man, I don't know. <laughs> I like how you saw the trailer. That definitely was like, nope, yeah, the trailer was out. enough for me to go, nope, no, 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 not worth it. And, and don't get me wrong, like I'm not saying White Boy Rick and and uh, the, Predator. Uh, the Predator are going to be any better, but like, I don't know. I don't know, man. The yeah. trailer kind of shows you the home movie. I do like Anna Kendrick, though. Yeah, I, I like I like me some Anna Kendrick, but too. I don't like Blake Lively. This this is gonna this is where I'm gonna sound sexist and horrible, but like she's got a kid in the movie, and I'm like, oh god, are we aging out Anna Kendrick now? Is that where we're at? Anna Kendrick's at the point where she's having uh, kids in film, like, yeah. and it's not that she, not that she's any less of an actress for it, but like. It she just still feels, looks twenty. Yeah, I'm like she's got a kid, and like Blake Lively's got one too. I'm like, really? You both have kids now? That's where we're at in film. Like, this feels like they're aging them up, and they don't need to. I, I don't know. I, 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 feel I see like, what you mean. I'm hanging myself out to dry. On yeah, it. yeah. This, this sounds ice. bad. This, <laughs> this is very thin ice. Okay. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think I'm not a big, I'm not a big Paul Feig fan. I, I don't think. Uh, I, I wonder if they're great for the roles or if like the roles are written for them or if this is just like, hey, we got two two hot actresses. They'll do it like they'll 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 I, I don't know. But I, I watched it and I'm like, I'm not super into it. To be fair, I'm not super into the Predator either, but I'm a big Predator fan. So that's kind of what I want to go see it. And then I don't really have defense for White Boy Rick, I guess. I don't know. The three movies. Those I mean, are the McC- two I, I always wanted. always love McConaughey. Yeah. Well, always, always, always. Pre- I mean, most of, yeah, most of the time, like 95%. There you go. 
Uh, so that is our show. If you liked what we had to say, or if you completely disagreed, or you think we were totally wrong on Crazy Rich Asians, or Zach is incredibly sexist in his view of Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively, email us at mail at offscriptfilmview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmview.com. Follow us on Twitter at offscriptreview. Follow us on Facebook at offscriptfilm. Also on Instagram, think at offscriptfilm, right? Film yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You'll find us. Check out Offscript, right. the home of bold cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.